Uh, good morning, all you cooks and creatives and readers and who else? Uh, wine professionals, we have an interesting show today. You're listening to On the Menu with Dan and Peter Haig. And uh, we're going to start with, you know, I've, I've read Marion Nessel for years, and I've been to her lectures. She always comes up with something fresh and and profound. I'm saying that she is a, a thinker. So um, she has this book out called Let's, Let's Ask Marion. And the questions are questions that we all have, I think, on our mind now about what's the future of food. Right, right. And hospitality. So, so and, and nutrition. So, so, not, so not for nothing do you ask Marion. Marion Nessel, you've been giving out such good information for so many years. And, uh, and you're always, from my perspective, you're always on the right side of every issue. <laughs> um, do, do you, I mean, like considering now, I said this book, Let's Ask Marion, what you need to know about the politics of food, nutrition, and health. Um, it couldn't have come at a better time. At the same time, the, the general scene or the, the food scene, the, you know, uh, it, it just seems, I, I'm very discouraged by the whole thing. Do you think we're making any progress whatsoever? Oh, I think we're making plenty of progress. It's just the, the progress is in some areas and not others. Uh, the coronavirus pandemic is certainly getting a lot more people cooking, and that's a good thing. Yeah, that is, come to think of it, yeah. But there also there's more food insecurity, which is an issue you address a lot. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I can't help talking about the coronavirus because that's what we're in the middle of. Right. But there are three things that the coronavirus exposed about the food system that are just so amazing I can't get my head around it. The idea that people who work in meatpacking plants oh, yeah. who aren't paid very well don't have sick leave um, and are mostly people of color, all of a sudden they're essential. And, <laughs> and the places where they work, the meatpacking plants, the companies that own them got the president to invoke the Defense Production Act to force them to go to work, even though nearly 60,000 of them have become sick. Nearly 60,000 food workers have become sick, and there are nearly 250 deaths that we know about, and those are only the ones we know about. Yeah. And then the idea that food was being destroyed while people were lining up at food banks to get handouts of food. Yeah, it's fine that I didn't quite understand. It's the system of getting the food from the producer to the consumer. Is that it? Well, it has to do with two completely different supply chains for food. There's a supply chain for restaurants and schools and other institutions where they feed large numbers of people at a time. And then there's a retail food chain. And when the food service food chain cut off, the people who produced for that food chain had no place to send their products. They couldn't send them to grocery stores because they weren't equipped to do that. They didn't have the logistics set up. So they were destroying food. They were, what is the polite word, culling animals. Culling, um, right. Culling animals. Um, while 
people were lining up in cars for miles to get food boxes. Um, and then the other one that, I mean, there's, there's just so much. The other one is all of a sudden everybody found out that, guess what, schools aren't just about teaching kids. Right. That's where kids are, that's where kids are fed. Yes. Big surprise. So I think the, you know, those revelations, have and everybody knows about them now all of a sudden food systems are in the news and everybody knows about them i think that's a that's good yeah well the and, and we, we have a lot of friends of course and colleagues in the, the food rescue and avoiding food waste um, spectrum but it's, it seems to me that, i mean it all goes back to even what, nobody's paying any attention to climate change all of a sudden. Well, it's hard to think about climate change when you're wor- having to wear a mask. I don't know how else to put that. Um, really? Yeah, I mean, when climate change is probably the overriding issue that just is more important than anything else. And, you know, I'm, I'm teaching a class this fall at NYU on... Uh, food systems in the food politics in the coronavirus era. And the point that I'm making is the diet that's best for health is also the best for planetary health. And we should all be trying to consume a diet that's best for both at once because it's the same diet. It makes it a lot easier. You know, you you talk about um, a nutritious diet. Um, and you're butting heads with the marketing budgets of all these junk food, over-processed food um, businesses. Um, that has to be a place where the government needs to step in. Well, I think there are lots of places where the government has to step in, but yeah. in a way that's better for the public um, and maybe not so much better for corporations. Um, you know, I'm greatly in favor of uh, accurate labeling, dietary guidelines that are clear and straightforward, um, and not letting food companies market junk foods to kids. Um, but I'm not in charge, unfortunately. Yeah, well, <laughs> it seems all the wrong people are in charge right now. Like the special, um, uh, what was it, a, a restaurant committee that uh, the Trump administration pulled together that was mainly the um, chains with oh, exactly. the, a couple exactly. of headliners like Thomas Keller, who certainly should have known better. You know? Right. Um, yeah, well, I mean, administrations change. Um, right, well, we, we're hoping, we need, aren't we? We need, to, we need to be ready for um, improvements. Maybe, now you, go ahead, maybe brother. Bezos can take us there. Maybe Jeff Bezos can take us there. He's... At least if he's asked to be believed, he is taking his company in a direction, several different directions, all of which are good for climate change. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear which company you said. Well, I'm talking about Jeff Bezos, which is Amazon. Oh, Amazon, yes. But but he's he's (laughs) declared that he's going to buy 100,000 electric vehicles, and they'll they'll be they'll be 100 percent of the power will be under their control within 10 years. I mean, he's making all the right noises. Yeah, of course, he's profiting enormously under the current uh, market 
for um, food. Yeah. <laughs> the people like, who have who could afford I would, food. I would, I would like to see him pay a fair share of his taxes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah. at least he doesn't have to ask anybody else. No, if you're rich enough, you don't. Yeah. Well, you you know, you come down on, on a number of issues that um, I mean that so easily remedied if someone's heart or mind is in the right place. Um, you know, one of them being that the food companies are the ones that put up these studies <laughs> about the nutritional value of their their own products. Yeah, isn't that clever of them? It's, it's absolutely outrageous, and I remember I was at one of your lectures, and you told me, um, you talked about some of that, and you also talked about the regulatory bodies um, that, I think you had an image of a, a pizza with pepperoni and cheese, uh-huh. and you did a chart, do you know which one I'm talking about? Oh yeah, the 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 pizza is a vegetable one when the rules changed on school lunches. <laughs> oh yeah, of course the the whole idea of, of um, school lunches. I mean, they're they're giving away billions of dollars of food, but so much of the money, the actual money, that's going it's going to these corporations that aren't putting it back into the economy. It's going to uh, executive salary and stockholders. Well, that's our system. It shouldn't be the system, and I don't know how you change it. Yeah, well, um, it's time, well, to, time for I feel change. very seriously about it, so, so much so you wrote a book. Yes. Which I thought we were going to talk about. We are, okay. <laughs> you, you, have a, you have issues in the book. These are, People ask you questions all the time. The kind of questions I always get are, what are the best restaurants in Paris, and what is the best <laughs> restaurant? And the yours are a little bit more basic and down to earth than that. Um, and uh, one of them that, that I find really intriguing is this: is fake meat better for us and the planet than the real thing? Tell us well, what your thoughts are. Well, I think the jury is still out on that one. Um, mm-hmm. The big issue in in nutrition right now is ultra processed foods. Ultra processed is the new buzzword for um, a specific category of junk foods that are industrially produced, uh, have ingredients that you can't make in home kitchens, <laughs> are heavily advertised, very profitable, have a lot of added sugar and salt. I mean, you know what they are. They're a fancy word for junk foods, but yeah. they're but they're clearly distinguished from other kinds of food processing because most foods that we eat are processed. So it's just ultra-processed foods. And it's the ultra-processed foods that are linked to poor health, to poor environmental impact, um, and to other things that, you know, if you want to do one thing to avoid getting weight, gaining weight, you avoid ultra-processed foods because they're designed to get you to eat more of them, don't eat just one. And what's troubling about the meat substitute products is that they fall into the category of ultra-processed foods because they're made, they're industrially produced, they're made with ingredients 
uh, pea protein, for example, and other kinds of additives that you can't do in home kitchens. There are lots and lots of ingredients. They actually taste pretty good. I've tasted several. We, we've tasted them, too. In fact, we put a regular uh, ground beef, I don't want to top grade some sort, uh, and a burger against the, was it the, um, which burger was that? Well, it's either impossible or beyond. It, it was the impossible burger. And, and, and if I were not, if I didn't know what I was tasting, I would say that the fake one tasted better. Oh, interesting. I mean, I think they're pretty good. They taste yeah. fine. But I don't really understand them because <laughs> if you don't want to eat meat, don't eat meat. Exactly. I mean, I, I, I kind of don't get it. I don't get this thing about bleeding. I don't know what that means. I would think yeah. that would be a major turnoff to a vegetarian or vegan. No, if, if, you, if you don't want to eat meat, you don't have to eat meat. It's not an essential nutrient. You don't need it. But people tell me that they miss meat terribly. Um, and I'm surprised by that because I eat a largely, although not exclusively, plant-based diet. Um, and... It surprises me. I mean, if you don't want to eat meat, don't eat meat. Um, and I, I've had parents say, oh, it's just such a relief to be able to take my child to a fast food place <laughs> and have something there for them to eat. And I think, you know, and, and so this is a way of thinking that's, that's just not, it's just not the way I think. Yeah, so yeah. I have trouble with the whole thing. And one of my food rules is not to eat anything artificial. And these are artificial. So, you know, I'm not really very interested in them, but I'm fascinated by how so many people, for so many people, this represents something that they feel that they can eat ethically, morally, they're not killing animals, um, and, and yet it, well, satisfies yeah, I mean, some were, kind of, it satisfies some kind of basic taste that they have. Well, the thing is, that amazes me is um, we had a successful um, small chain restaurant in this area um, that specialized in serving up um, vegetarian food made to look like meat. <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I did. I have a um, a vegan cousin who, and I got I got tasked with the, the um, Thanksgiving meal for the family that year, and, um, and she wanted I can't remember what it's called, but I looked everywhere for it, and it finally got to reading labels like I'd never read labels before in my life, and, um, and they made a turkey. And the fake turkey that made that looked like turkey, and that's what she wanted. I mean, to me, that's like drinking fake beer. I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like yeah, well, but it's, it's a know, lie. I've just met so many people uh, who who want these things that I think, okay, fine. But to me, they're ultra processed. Now, <laughs> let, let me take you down a slightly different direction, Marion. Let, let's. Let's let's go to the place where Thomas Malthus might be working if he wasn't dead yet. And uh, we we had the interesting experience of visiting with a professor at the Sorbonne in Paris, who was who was wrestling with a different kind of problem called 
how to deal with food shortages. He's talking about uh, teeth, you know, teeth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I, can't hear, I really can't hear him very well. Well, let me, um, let me try again. Um, this professor, Hervé Teeth, he has a chair at the Sorbonne, I think. Yeah, the guy who does molecular gastronomy. Exactly. That, that, that's the guy, but, but he's coming at it from a different point of view. He's coming, coming at it from a post-Malthusian position that he's truly worried that there actually isn't really enough food to go around. And, well, we're uh, not there what, yet. What you, do, what you do about that is to create artificial food. Yeah, we're not anywhere near there yet. Um, in the United States, at least, we produce twice the amount of food that we need on a per capita basis, and that's, that's where the food, the issue of food waste comes in, because we can't eat that much, therefore it has to be wasted, um, or something has to happen to it. Uh, so that's not what the problem is. The problem okay. is that it's not distributed equitably. Yeah, uh, and the the real the fundamental problem, uh, and the one about people not having enough food, has to do with inequitable distribution, which exactly. I think is a much more pressing problem, and something that has to be dealt with right away. Right. Now, the uh, you have another interesting section that's following up on the same thing. The, the question is, will technology fix our food system? And you say, no, <laughs> in a word, no, I don't think it will. Um, and I'm not very interested in these technologically produced foods. I think we have food. We know how to produce food. The big problems are social problems about how you get food to people who need it and how you get healthy food to people who need it. Um, I'm not opposed to technology, but I'm, you know, the kinds of technological solutions that I've seen for food problems are um, not things that interest me. I'm not interested in technologically produced meat alternatives, uh, and I'm not interested in printed foods particularly. Uh, I mean, I want people eating more fruits and vegetables and uh, plant foods and healthier diets generally and having the money to be able to buy those kinds of diets. That seems to me to be the most pressing problem that's facing um, the world's population is how to eat healthfully so that you don't, be, you don't gain weight, you don't come, become at risk for type 2 diabetes or heart disease, um, and you're eating a diet that promotes your health and the health of the planet at the same time. The real question Great. is how do we make that possible for everybody? Now, what, what about, sweetheart, what, what about that place in Braddock where, where they, they're control, oh, controlling the... Uh, the robotony, robotony, which is very clever. It's low, lowercase r-o, and then it's capital B-O-T-A-N-Y, and uh, the company founders came out of um, uh, Carnegie Mellon University, which is very strong in... Uh, in computer science, artificial intelligence, and so on. And they're uh, one of these many people who are now experimenting with vertical urban um, farms uh, with all the high technology administered by robots. Yeah, oh, yeah. I've been to some of these, and they're very impressive. They really are. 
uh, and the um, the they haven't solved the energy problem yet. They're still mm-hmm. so energy intensive that mm-hmm. the cost issues are are complicated. And until they can solve that problem, it's not clear that uh, they're going to really be a, a method for producing food. Um, you know, again, it's a question of we have enough food. That's really not the issue right now. It may be an issue in 30 or 40 or 50 years, but right now it is not the issue. The issue right now is distribution of food so that mm-hmm. people who are, having, who are poor can get healthy food when and where they need it. You know, maybe you could help me with another dilemma I have talking to all these people is – where did this whole concept of superfoods come from, and who determines that it's a superfood? Oh, it's a marketing term. The marketers but dreamed it. How does this and, happen? And, and it's a. Um, uh, it has to do with with the marketing of fruits and vegetables and nuts and grains, and marketers have figured out that if they advertise one or another fruit, blueberries, pomegranates, pecans, whatever, as a superfood, then they can increase their market share against that of their competitors. So you've got pecans competing with walnuts, competing with macadamia nuts, (laughs) competing with Brazil nuts. They're all superfoods. And you have fruits, you know, every fruit is a superfood because it's got vitamins. Any food that has vitamins is a superfood. So well, are we are so we remiss in, in in not that having better education um, of people consumers? Oh, I think it's fun. I think people <laughs> really, I think people really respond to these kinds of things because we're human and it's fun. Um, you know, the principles of healthy diets are really simple. You just eat a wide variety of relatively unprocessed foods and don't eat too much. Um, and that really yeah. takes care of it. And you should yeah. eat Michael Pollan's, I love that. Yeah, Michael Pollan's, yeah. eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Totally yeah. takes care of it. And yeah. the, but that's not very interesting. And when you are bombarded with billions of dollars of advertising of one kind of food product or another, right, right, um, right. it's easy to get confused. And it's tax deductible. That's the thing that every, every penny of marketing is tax deductible. Just even marketing aimed at children. Yeah, well, you you're very strongly opposed to that. Yes, because well, um, it works, and it convinces it kids. You know, I've had so many parents tell me, "We don't have television in our house. We don't ever have junk food in our house, and we drive down the street, and our kid sees a McDonald's and says, I want to eat there.'" Yeah. And how yeah, do they and do and that? they do, right? They how do, do they, they do, do that? Because that's, that's the way amazing. to keep them quiet. Yeah, that's amazing. They're really smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we're in this mess, and um, education is part of it. Now, I was excited as you uh, you were or are about all these uh, culinary courses um, that people could take. Um, and you were, you were talking about uh, some of the like, um, New York University's program and 
Oh, and, that's uh, not a culinary course. That's food studies. That's quite yeah, different. food studies. You're that's very. Uh, that, that's really quite different. Um, we do have basic cooking courses, but it's not. No, no, I'm talking about the. Um, we have. Um, oh, what's the name of it? Chatham University has a, a center for that, but like everything else, with the pandemic, I mean, I, I almost cried when um, they. They not only closed the school down, and of course students weren't in class to do anything, but they had started an aquaculture program, and uh, they had to get rid of their fish. And I mean, I was probably in tears. I'm such a sap under this stuff. But they found homes for some of the fish, uh, or they processed it and sold it for food. Or they had it ground up for fertilizer. <laughs> oh, yeah, because they weren't allowed to go in and take care of them. Isn't oh, that awful? That, that's a shame. Well, this is causing you know enormous pain for enormous numbers of people. Um, and I'm teaching a course this fall, but my course is online, totally uh-huh. online. And it's amazing. I have students in Singapore, Hong Kong, Abu Dhabi. Oh. They're all over the world. Strange. It is. Yeah, we sometimes get emails in, um, in, in you know, Chinese, Mandarin, or you know, other things I don't even recognize. It's it's very strange to think about. But so we've dug ourselves into this hole, Marion, and so I'm going to ask you. You have ideas about how do we dig ourselves out of it. What do we do? And advocacy is one of the uh, important methods you suggest for curing this. Well, it's, uh, I have an easy answer to that this year. Vote. And make sure yeah. that all your friends vote. And do everything you can to get out the vote. I mean, ordinarily I talk about advocacy and joining groups and getting active in local communities and doing and using the political system to try to make the food system better. Uh, but this year, there's nothing to talk about except voting. Yep. Right, right. All and it's not vote. enough, as you said, to vote with your fork anymore. You have to actually physically vote. Yeah, I mean, you In vote. Fact, you do. If according to our president, you should vote twice. <laughs> right. Vote early and often. <laughs> yes. That was right. in Chicago, right? Vote oh, early, vote often. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you vote with your fork. You make food choices based on your values, but it's also very important to get involved in the political system because if you don't do it, who will? Right. Well, let's give another plug for this book because it, it really explains things very easily and readily um, on a, a I don't want to say on a, a simple basis, but clearly it's lucid in its, in its answer to these questions that we all have. No matter how much you talk about it, there are always more questions. And then it's Marion Nestle, and it's called Let's, Let's Ask Marion. And if anybody wants to know what the politics of food, nutrition, and health might be, you start with this book. And if you don't find the answers, you have one of the most extensive uh, bibliographies in the back on, on issues. 
you always kind of document all your work anyhow. But this I try. is yeah. <laughs> well, you know you're going to have people disagreeing with you the minute you put it on paper. Always, always, and I also write a daily blog at foodpolitics.com. Oh yeah, uh, where where I talk about these issues all the time. Great, and it's tell us again. The blog is where foodpolitics.com. Great. All right, Mary. Well, let's hope that everything works out this year, right? That would that would be wonderful. <laughs> and then I hope you get your class back. I mean, you 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 can still do it virtually forever, huh? I suppose it's a new experience. <laughs> thank you so much for talking to us, Mary. Oh, Nestle. thank you. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Seems like we're dealing with a number of icons in this program. This next up is one that's at the top of my list. It's this wonderful Kitchen Arts and Letters bookstore in New York City. Um, we'll talk to uh, the, the, the managing partner, Matt Sartwell, um, and he's going to tell us about the background of this um, the, the bookstore and some of their programming, and, and especially this swiftly accomplished um, GoFundMe program, which shows how important this bookstore is uh, to the industry and community. Uh, I, I might mention that we had a, kind of a startling, abrupt end to it because we were talking away, and all of a sudden the power went out. Just <laughs> I, I, I cleaned it up as best I could. Yeah. So, uh, but anyhow, we ought uh, Matt to say what that, what he really needed to say to all of us about it, and um, we'll pretend he said goodbye. We're talking to Matt Sartwell, who he's the managing partner and a very, very important uh, resource to the culinary community, an independent bookstore in, um, in New York called Kitchen Arts and Letters. Um, Matt, I'm going to let you talk to our listeners about all this represents. It's just the fact that it's an independent bookstore and it's so well regarded that um, you you had a GoFundMe campaign that surpassed its goal in 48 hours, and that's how much people uh, admire, respect, and want you to continue operating. Take us back to the beginning. Um, you were now managing partner, um, and tell us about who founded it, and why, and and what you do. Well. The store was founded in 1983 by uh, Knock Waxman, who is uh, still very closely involved in all that we do here, although he now specializes in, um, in handling books that are out of print. But when he opened originally, uh, he wanted to essentially be his own boss, and he considered two different specialty realms for the store. One was food and drink, and the other was sports. Uh, because they were both subjects that he was strongly interested in. And his instinct was that more people made their living from food and drink than they did from being athletes. So he <laughs> thought there would always be a, uh, a 
market for a book, a bookstore that specialized. So uh, he opened uh, in September of 1983, so just uh, uh, just a little over 37 years ago now. And um, it was originally in a smaller space in the same building we're in, but we expanded a few years later. And word got around pretty quickly that uh, there was a place where you could go and find a whole store devoted to not just cookbooks, but books about food history, books on how to open and run a food business or a bar, um, things that were you know, for anybody who might possibly be somehow making their living from food. And um, in the early days, um, you know, a lot of the great figures came in. Uh, James Beard uh, dropped by, although he was sort of close to the end of his life at that point. Uh, mm-hmm. Julia Child came in several times. The first visit, she just kicked off her shoes and curled up in She's the corner. A, and she was a riot, wasn't she? Well, I, <laughs> I only ever got to speak to her on the phone. But oh, not she's that, wild. Or she was every wild. time she came in, she was she lit the place up. She, um, incredible. she was incredible. I keep having a hard time saying it in past tense, but her spirit is so strong and lives on. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, so we've uh, we've been here um, on this block uh, ever since, and our customers are are all kinds of people with uh, an interest in our subject matter. So uh, we get a lot of uh, home cooks, serious people, um, people who are just getting started, people who are on a quest for uh, a particular uh, recipe that maybe once was popular in their family, but whoever made it has passed on and nobody wrote it down. Um, we get lots of people who work in, in the restaurant world, um, people who are right now are hurting pretty hard because of yeah, all well, the things that have been happening. Which and, brings us to that point, which um, we decided to, to feature you there because of this, the need to start a GoFundMe campaign. Yeah, well, we because you know the people. So the food conferences, of course, this was part of what we did too. They're all canceled. The restaurants are closed. <laughs> you know, so that market is drying up. Yeah, for this year at least, it's been um, it's been pretty much wiped out. I mean, our October usually consists of things like the New York Times Food Festival, the New York City Wine and Food Festival. The, Star Chefs Congress, which happened. Yeah, no, we, we missed that too. And um, so things like that were were really uh, important to our financial well-being, as well as just a chance for us to connect with with new people every year. So with those out of the picture, and you know, several months of not being open to the public, we uh, we had a lot of catching up to do. And when we made the call on GoFundMe, uh, we were just blown away by. Um, by how many people stepped up and, and helped us. I mean, we had, uh, I think, close to 1,200 people contribute. Um, it's a really uh, impressive and, and heartwarming amount of support, uh, moral now, support as well as financial. Now, Matt, you, you were shut down for, by, by the, uh, the governor and the, the mayor's program about retail establishments having to close. Yes, yeah, we, uh, like, I mean, you know, just about everybody in the city who wasn't selling, uh, you know, something considered essential, we were closed for just about three months, 
and once we were allowed to reopen, uh, you know, New Yorkers were understandably cautious about coming out. So yeah. foot traffic has been uh, has been pretty light and, and remains pretty light. Our website has been um, a lot more active than it has than it used to be. It's been sort of pushed to its limits, and we are working hard on. Um, taking some of the money from the GoFundMe in order to improve that to make it uh, friendlier and uh, more responsive, because that's clearly going to be important going forward. Yeah, well, this is true of just about everything beyond books, too, in terms of uh, people who've sold food online to restaurants and chefs, and now they don't have that market, really. And, uh, and the whole, I think, I think it's the whole shift in, in market. But now you've had, and of course, then there's this whole, um, this whole blown up deal with Amazon. I mean, that's the, a lot of the um, cookbook authors that we've interviewed um, have really been dragged over the coals with the Amazon phenomenon. Um, but you've always offered something that an online book purveyor didn't. With, you have all these public engagement programs now. Uh, how much? How much of that is resumed? Well, we we haven't been having any in-person events, of course, since uh, I think the end of February. Uh, we have done some uh, things online in conjunction with the 92nd Street Y, which is a block and a half away from us and is one of New York's great cultural institutions. Exactly. And um, so there have been talks with. Uh, uh, Fanny Singer and her mom Alice Waters came on and talked to people and last week we had uh, Dominic Ansel talking about his new book and David Lovovitz talking about his uh, we've had some cookbook groups where people sign up and they get a set of books and each week they, they all cook the same recipe out of it and, and go online to talk to each other about their experience we're just starting a new one up for um, vegetarian cooking um, so you've been very creative then in your programming, huh? Well, we've tried. I mean, we've uh, we've sort of had to, you know, adapt to what's possible, and uh, you know, we've been learning as we go along that there are some things that are uh, more exciting to people than others. But um, you know, we want to give people some of that sense of engagement and connection. Um, you know, we're we're a small store. If you you know, if you have a question about about your order and you call in, you're going to get a person. Um, yeah, that's a wonderful gonna, thing. Yeah, you're not going to get a um, a form response uh, in an email that basically doesn't tell you anything about about your order or what's happening. Um, the, so we, the whole Matt, the whole the whole book selling business has been so transformed. I mean, once once upon a time, it was controlled by Barnes and Noble and Borders and then this guy came along and said I can sell books even though I won't have any of them in stock I'll, I'll get someone to fulfill them after I get the order and that was called Amazon and and now you're you're hanging in there do you think the reason why is the programs that you just talked about well, I think I think there, there's certainly a part of it. I mean, I also think that when you when you go on our website and you read about a book, it's been written by somebody who's actually read it. Uh, oh, there you go. And spent time with it, so you're getting our perspective on it. Um, it's not 
you know, if you, if you read the copy on Amazon, it's the same copy you'll find on barnesandnoble.com. It's the, you know, it's the copy that the publishers write six or nine months before the, the book is published. Yeah. <laughs> and the books change as they come to press, and, you know, we write the copy with a copy of the, the book in hand so that we, uh, you know, we're looking at it as we're, as we're telling you about it. Um, and it's that kind of engagement with the books and, and that knowledge of the books that we try to pass on to people. Sometimes we do it here in the store. Sometimes we do it over the phone. Uh, it's what we try to make the website do more and more of. Um, still working on that. It's, it's not the same as coming to the store. Uh, but we, uh, we really want to give people uh, a point of view on the books. Um, and we're not basically out there telling people that the most important thing about a book is that it's cheap. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, some, some of them are really expensive. <laughs> yeah, some of them are. And, 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 you know, and there are reasons for that, too. I mean, because, you know, somebody may have uh, poured their life into something and only been able to afford to produce 500 copies. And so those 500 copies are going to be expensive. There's just no way around the fact that, you know, it's taken that much of somebody's time. Which was uh, one of the most expensive we saw, wasn't it? Wasn't it Pierre Gagnier, love? Uh, I don't remember. Pierre, Pierre Gagnier was pretty, was pretty fat. <laughs> and uh, El, El Bulli was pretty fat. Oh, that was some, some of them are indeed expensive, but, um, you know... Modernist we, cuisine, how many of those did you sell? Uh, close to 500. Did you really? Yeah. Well, I oh, mean, wow. we we uh, we serve a market that makes it, you know of, of people who make their living through food, and that book uh, was incredibly useful to that audience. Before it came along, you could try to assemble some of the information that was in there. You couldn't do all of it because there was a lot of original research. But if you had tried to buy individual books that offered you the same kind of coverage, you would have spent a lot more money. Oh, sure. $525 or $625. So, you know, sometimes that's just the way things are. But we also have, you know, books that we bring in from all over the world on very, very specific subjects. We bring in an, uh, actually two different books from Naples on, on Neapolitan pizza. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. And they're, uh, they're very different from each other. One is very scientific. One is very much the, the product of, you know, the local uh, pizza makers. Um, so they go off in different directions. But, you know, we think it's important to have resources like that. Somebody, somebody on my phone said hello and don't hang up. <laughs> guess, what I, guess what I did. <laughs> hello, hang up. Um, you know, the... It's amazing to me the extreme interest in some of these really obscure areas. I mean, like regional, really extremely small regional Philippine cuisine and things like that. You know what I mean? Um, well, I, you know, a lot of it is that many of these topics have not been uh, previously addressed in depth, at least by American publishers. Uh, so when a book finally becomes available, there's a lot of pent-up demand, um, you know, and there are actually a lot of people in the Philippines, and a lot of them have come here, and so being able to uh, help those people make a connection 
makes makes us all feel pretty good about what we're doing here. Yeah. Um, you know, the uh, mainstream, big mainstream publishing houses tend to make fairly safe choices. Every once in a while, they'll, they'll go out and, and push into fresh territory. But, um, you know, we're looking for things that are, that are, there aren't 25 copies of already. You know, we don't, we don't have 80 books on instant pot cooking. Uh, although there are more than more than that out there. Oh please! I mean, if, if I <laughs> the thing that bothers me the most actually are all the books on keto. <laughs> well, that's you know that's that's uh, its own sort of old trend in 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 publishing the way uh, publishers pursue something that's very much of the moment, and four or five years later the interest is gone and. Um, you know, it's like instant pot one, yeah. Um, I can remember all the books that you know that were out on on really low fat cooking. I mean, there are cycles of well, these things. That, what um, do you think is current? I mean, I meant there, there's I, we get so many books, which is you know why he probably they said the publishers send us all these books, and I can see some trends. And uh, right now it's all this home cooking stuff, right? Sure, that's had a that's had a big uptick. You know, there are those unfortunate people who publish books on on what to have when you're having people over that came out. Yeah, no, we did a lot of those too for a while. Yeah, but uh, you know, we don't we don't follow necessarily the uh, the most current trends because what we're trying to do is is in essence be the place that sort of works against the trend. Um, so you know. There are lots of instant pot books, and I think maybe we have three or four. Um, that's and about air fryers. Air fryers is another one. Yeah, and you know those are books that I think are often bought by people who don't um, who don't buy more than one cookbook. Uh, they're not really interested in cooking. They're sort of interested in um, in getting a task done. Uh, mm-hmm. So we don't we don't really build up a lot of uh, rapport with with those kinds of customers, and so we don't um, we don't go too deep in those areas. Well, you know that one of the trends I think is uh, away from the celebrity chef stuff. I mean, we had a period of that. They were really fancy books. A lot of those, um, although I see some of them are coming back. Like uh, what's his name in. Um, Oh, Favicon, um and Nielsen, and yeah. he, he I, you know, and also um, the combination of uh, per se and French Laundry. That's expensive. That's fine. Um, but I, what was I starting to say? <laughs> um, it's now. I mean, we, we we seem to see a lot of vegetarian cookbooks now. Absolutely, that that's true, and I think the publishing in that area has definitely gotten a lot stronger over the last ten or fifteen years. Um, instead of uh, people saying, "Well, how can I, you know, use vegetables to make a dish that normally has meat in it?" Now, people who are writing vegetarian cookbooks say, "All right, well, what am I cooking with, and what's a good thing to do with them?" And it's a different way of thinking about the, the subject, and it produces books that are a lot more interesting. 
Uh-huh. I'm not a vegetarian, but I own several vegetarian cookbooks simply because the uh, the people who have written them have a great uh, sense of, of flavor, and they know um, how to come up with interesting ways to treat uh, these different types of foods. So that is, that is definitely a place where uh, the cookbooks have improved enormously. Have you, have you seen a couple of what you would call real hits recently? In vegetarian? No, no, just in general. Like what's the hot box? Like if we said if you want to get a really good cookbook, go to this website and tell us what the website is and then tell us about a couple of books you think people really ought to have. Well, on, um, on kitchenartsandletters.com, uh, you'll find a book called Falastin, F-A-L-A-S-T-I-N, which is about Palestinian food. Uh, it's a beautiful, very flavor-rich cookbook with a lot of cultural material. Yeah. It's written by Sammy Tamimi, who is a business partner of uh, Yotamata Lengi, who's had a number of successful books on his own. Oh, right. Uh, he's, in, he's in London, right? They're based in no. London, yeah. He, and, no, sorry, go ahead. talking about this. It's the, the guy who wrote the cookbook. Is he in London yeah. too? Yeah, their 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 whole setup is, okay. is based out of London. Okay. Um, and I think that's uh, that's a book that works with a lot of flavors that people have been interested in, in the last decade or so. But uh, the the approach is is different enough that you won't feel like, oh, I have that. I've seen that recipe ten times. Otto um, Lenke, by the way, is. Uh, he is hostile to media. I don't know how you get along with him, but we've never even been able to interview him. Huh. Well, I, I, I haven't had that experience. We've done a number of uh, events with them, but I think there is a pretty um, dense, um, shall we say, publicity barrier around him that makes it difficult to reach him directly. I, I, I wouldn't say he's hostile. I think he's one of the most charming people I've ever met and, uh-huh. and a very generous guy. But it's possible that he's safeguarded by uh, by people whose job it is to maximize. Safeguard. Yeah, let's see. Keep those keep those nasty news hands away. Huh? Well, yeah, I know that's sometimes how people feel like they're doing their job is by making other people. Yeah, feel well, it's, like it's, you know, it it varies. I mean, we, there are some people we've followed for really a long time, and then all of a sudden. Um, they have a, a, a crew around them that blocks them off. One of these is we've been covering Massimo Bottura since the 60s, I mean the 60s, the 90s. And um, you know, it's impossible getting a hold of them anymore. I mean, it's, it's I, I don't know. So I think a lot of that's going to change, however, because I think the whole celebrity chef thing is going to Go on, and we'll be back. What do you think? Well, it's it's you know the whole whole restaurant world is is going to be changing soon. So it's uh, I don't know that I can predict exactly where things will where things will go. Yeah, I was just going to ask you where do you think we'll land? Well, I mean, I don't think that books from restaurants are going to disappear. Um, the que- the question is always you know when a restaurant chef does a book is is who he or she is trying to address. Um, and sometimes what happens is a book comes along that's one chef really sort of talking to other chefs, and, yeah. and 
you know, there's an audience for that. Um, but sometimes the marketing gets mixed up and somebody's trying to promote it as, the, you know, uh, the great weeknight dinners when it's really about this is how we do it at the restaurant. Yeah, right. And, and <laughs> We've just, got a lot of those. Yeah, and that's just sort of, it, it's, it's mean, it's inefficient. Uh, you know, I would not uh, tell anybody who's buying uh, the new Magnus Nielsen book or, or Thomas Keller's new book that this is the kind of thing where you're going to come home and have dinner on the table in 20 minutes. Yes, for sure. <laughs> but there are people, you know, people who's, who work in restaurants whose job it is to constantly innovate, to, to come up with interesting new ideas, uh, to keep, you know, the specials changing at the restaurant. To, and things, uh, and processes. I mean, we know one chef who's very into koji uh, research and experimentation. Yes. And uh, so I, I bought the, I, I brought the book, um, the, the Koji book, um, the guy in, uh, in the Cleveland. Hmm? Yeah. Koji yeah. Alchemy. Yeah, Koji Alchemy. And uh, yeah, honestly, that was probably one of my worst subjects in school chemistry. <laughs> so you have to have a very specific audience for a book like that. But I know the kinds of people that, that, that buy that. Yeah, I so, mean, there are, that, certainly it's not the kind of book I would, I would put in the hands of somebody who, who walks in the door uh, just sort of casually interested in, in Japanese cooking or even fermentation. That's a book for somebody who's had a chance to spend some time with the subject. And, yeah. and wants but he was a delightful interview, by the way. He, he was nothing like the, uh, the, the book. I mean, the book is not exactly a page-turner. You know? <laughs> and he was very, very open and, and fun, so yeah, you that, never that, could that tell. It doesn't surprise me. You know, people, uh, when people are excited by a passion, it can, it can really come through. Now, how do you deal with the, the publishers? I mean, how do you get your stock of books? Most of our books we order directly from the publishers. Um, we, you know, we get an announcements several months out of uh, new things that are coming, and we place orders uh, with them. Uh, and then when it comes time, you know, that we need more stock, we'll either um, order directly from the publisher, or there are a couple of companies that um, that represent multiple publishers uh, who can supply us with small amounts of stock quickly. So between the two of them, that accounts for most of what we have on hand. But we do a lot of buying of books that are self-published by people who, uh, you know, have done uh, something that they couldn't get a big publisher interested in, but they thought was a worthwhile topic. And if we agree, we'll, we'll seriously consider carrying their book. What about you? Do you have your own cookbook collection? <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm here six days a week in a store with... Uh, God knows how many different food books. So my collection at home is is pretty tightly focused. Um, <laughs> On what? Because I, you know, I have I have I wouldn't say the ultimate access, but but pretty extensive access to anything I might need. So the stuff that makes it into the house is um, is a is a shorter list. Yeah, well, yeah, because we have a lot of trouble with this. I mean, they stack up. Fortunately, we live in a big house, but I'll tell you. I mean, I'll, I'll have like 300 cookbooks in my hall at all times. <laughs> yeah, well, we spend a lot of time here putting books away. <laughs> I, I think it's very thrilling, Matt, 
that, that you've proved that a book a book store is still relevant. Well, thank you. We, I mean, I, I think it was really our customers who stepped up and and, and proved that we were important. I mean, uh, I, I I have to emphasize just how how humbling and and encouraging at the same time it was to see um, so many people, um, you know, offering us support that way, and including a lot of people I know who are out of work. Um, oh, that's that's moving. Very very moving, isn't it? Yeah. No, we're we're determined to stick around for them. Great, and you're going to use the, the funds to um, um, fix the website, which is um, going to be debuted when the new website. Well, uh, the new the revised version of the website probably won't debut until after the holidays are over. Um, it's just uh, it, it takes time to test. Well, there are recurrent issues in the. Um, hospitality industry, and uh, one of them is diversity, um, especially racial diversity. Uh, something a lot of people don't think about, but uh, Julia Coney, our next guest, has thought long and hard about it, and uh, she organized a group called Black Wine Professionals. She is an, an expert in, in uh, psalm and, and uh, spirit uh, wine expert herself. And um, nobody can say, I don't know anybody uh, who's black, who's into wine, because she has it all listed on her website. Let's listen to Julia Coney. Yes, we're going to be talking to Julia Coney. Um, Who are you, Julia Coney? (laughs) I am a wine journalist. I am a speaker, and I am also a consultant. Okay, and the that's a short answer. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> you've done ten million things. And, um, and, where, and, where, and where are you, Julie? I yeah. am currently in based in Washington D.C. Oh, I thought you were in New York. Uh-huh. Okay, no, Washington no, no, D.C. D.C. Yeah. And um, and I hope, you're not, I hope you're not demonstrating too much. No, I did. I did that for a minute, and you know, it's got to keep chucking and hustling along, you know. Yep. Yeah. So, um, yeah, when it all started, uh, I just, I was on the phone to a friend, and I just started to cry. I said, you know, I've already gone through this once. I don't think I can go through it another time. <laughs> but where have we come? I guess your group uh, is making some progress, and people are finally waking up to the fact that there's a you know, lack of diversity in the uh, industry of, of, of wine professionals, uh, wine, um, restaurants and chefs, um, food magazines, writers, mm-hmm. the whole thing. And it's all happening all at once. Tell us, what, I mean, what is the name of the organization you founded? So I founded Black Wine Professionals, and as a person who works in the industry, I realized that a lot of opportunity and access was not happening for many black wine professionals that I knew. And Mm -hmm. after June 2nd, with everything with the new civil rights movement that I like to call it, this new movement, I needed to create something to highlight these people so no one ever has to say that they don't know any black wine professionals. 
So it's really, the organization is really new. It, it was, uh, we launched June 29th. That's, that's but, new. But it's a resource, I mean, because as she said, as Julia said, I mean, people will say, oh, I don't know any black farmers. I don't know any black uh, sommeliers. I don't know. And but this, your listing and your research is taking away that excuse, right? It's taking away that excuse, and it's also highlighting that when, you know, you have, you know, industry events or Zooms where they're sending people wine to taste through things, now you just have new voices, and that's a good thing as well. Right. Um, you know, I mean, what, what, are, what do you think is the tone um, in the, the whole hospitality industry right now? Since everything's practically shut down. Hmm? I mean, it's, it's scary, right? It's scary. Yeah. People don't know what's happening. And, I mean, we have so many people out of work. And it's just a really, really sad time. But I do believe that it will bounce back. I, I am a glass half full person, so I'm coming that the glass is half full and it will bounce back. And with that, we're gonna you're gonna need people who are able to go back to work or maybe new to the industry. I mean, the wine industry, as you all know, in the hospitality industry, it's an enjoyment, right? People really enjoy this this industry, and so that's why we want to be able to be that resources that when someone needs talent, whether that talent is in person eventually or virtual, that you have it. Well, you know, all this stirring up has, has caused me to pause and think back on on opportunities I've lost out on because I'm female. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can look back and, and see really jobs that I was very qualified for and in a position to assume, and I was passed over. And, you know, it didn't hit me for a long time. Mm-hmm. So um, and, there's a lot of and, work. And just, just imagine that and then couple that with someone's race, and then you have this other dynamic shift, and that's what we're trying to change. Right. I mean, how, on your estimation, I mean, like, how many serious wine professionals are in minority groups? I personally have know that we currently have over 150 members, and I currently have 300 applications to go through. Okay. <laughs> so, well, that's and that's just, now that's primarily United States. And I mean, when I and we and, and one of the things that we did with the professionals, we took out just being a psalm, just being an educator. We gave it the perspective of if you work in marketing, if you work in sales, if you work in distribution, if you work in importation, because a lot of times we see the more front of the house side, we see the psalm aspect this way. You are a black wine professional if you work in accounting at a winery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, Instead actually, of being pigeonholed, like, oh, I don't work at a winery, so I'm not included. You know, this this is not an exact um, reflection of what you're talking about, but um, we had a bang-up organization that started in the 90s called Women's Chefs and Restaurateurs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, and, and we had so many local chapters and we had so much activity, and it was really going gangbusters until some of the people um, who were like chefs, okay, um, objected to people who were not directly in restaurant work 
even though they were culinary Mm -hmm. professionals, women, you know, um, they should not be in charge of anything. And so when people got rid of us, I was a food critic at the time, a restaurant critic, um, the organization slowly collapsed. Oh, wow. I mean, because it's, you know, we were the ones that's carrying the, the heavy load. Well, the, um, funny, the funny part about it is you remember the, the, only, the only chapter of Women's Chefs and Restaurants that had any kind of program was, was Anne's in Pittsburgh. And the, oh, I had it. The, ma- the main reason was because all, cause all the chefs wanted to, get, wanted to get to know the dining critic for the Pittsburgh <laughs> So, so the... So there was there was fine motivation for them to get them to get involved, and when somebody came along and said we need we need to make this group more modern, younger, more dynamic, and and got politely suggested she she should go somewhere else. The, the <laughs> chapter collapsed. They never had meetings. Did, that was the last meeting. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Well, it might not, you know, and sometimes like things like that, it may not be that person. They might not, it might not be time for something like that, right? Could be a little, yeah. you know, and a lot of things are, is timing, I like to say, too. Mm-hmm. And it yeah, just maybe, true. who's to say if that was revitalized now, it wouldn't be a great thing, you They've know? They've tried. They've tried a couple oh. of times. <laughs> tell, tell us more about your career in wine. You, I mean, you, you've been at it a while. But that, I don't know really, the funny thing about is I have circumvented different careers, right? Like yeah, okay. I used to be a legal assistant. And so in my late 20s, which is the late 90s, I was very interested in wine. I was very interested in it because an attorney I worked with at the time, was he just introduced me to food and wine pairing in a way that I hadn't before. I come from a family my family right, doesn't right, drink. Right. So, yeah, that was fine. And he introduced me, and eventually, this was in Houston, because I am from Houston, and eventually moved to D.C. In D.C., I started a beauty blog in twenty in 2006. I kept that blog for a decade, and from there, I went from being a legal assistant to a full-time beauty writer to now a full-time wine writer. Wow. Okay, so you... But you serve an exception. I mean, it... Up until recently, there there weren't many perks um, from the point of view of somebody looking to advance and and make money and so forth. This was not, it's like chefs, the same thing. Until we had Mm -hmm. people on uh, the Food Network and and Food TV, I mean, there wasn't much glamour involved with being a chef. So it wasn't the kind of career you would look to, I would think. And the same with no, the wine. It was it was one of those things I, I felt like if I could become from a legal assistant to a beauty writer, then I could actually take that into wine. But I had so much knowledge about wine. I started going to Bordeaux when I was 27 years old. So I think my experience was very different than somebody who had just entered the industry. I came from a consumer who actually had been to many wine regions. Uh-huh. And that, I brought that perspective of knowing about wine drinking wine from all over the world, using, like, wine to be part of my experience on a vacation. So wine was always 
on the periphery. It just wasn't full time. Right. right. Uh, you 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 know our old old acquaintance, Mac McDonald, right? It was yes. talking <laughs> about him earlier. And, yeah. and when when we met him, we heard his story. His story started out with somebody somebody gave him a, a sample of a first growth Bordeaux wine to drink. <laughs> and and he, he tried it, and he liked it so well, he said, I'm going to grow grapes and make wine like that. Exactly. <laughs> this is and look at in the heart of Texas. Wine. And, and I understand yeah, he did. But he was, he was in the most unlikely circumstance to even choose a career in wine, being <laughs> in, the, in the heart of Texas. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, so. Some, somehow or other, he got someone to fund him to, to actually have a winery. He's very remember. smart. I can't, I can't remember the details of it. But that's the well, best way to do partner. it, right? Isn't that the uh, thing, the quickest way to go broke is to um, start a winery? Isn't that like sure. a joke? In California, well, <laughs> if, 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 you want, if you want to have $2 million, you start with five. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're a movie star or a football player or someone some with lots of money to throw around. Brad, Brad Pitt, for example, has... Aside from the fact that he's had several wives, he also has several wineries, I think. <laughs> and if you're, no. Francis, if you're Francis Ford Coppola, who's a really interesting guy, he he actually bought an old California winery called Inglenook, mm-hmm. made that into his house, and built a winery next to it. <laughs> I mean, and it's gorgeous. And yeah. it's gorgeous. Who wouldn't yeah, want yeah, that? Absolutely. And, and and he makes and he makes great wine. Mhm. Let, let's go back to basics here. Um, okay. What are besides perception? What are the major obstacles in uh, diversity among black wine professionals? I think um, not just perception, but also with that perception comes those are the people who are in power to make change in. Also, I believe facilitate growth because you can hire a person, but do you are you there to help them grow in that industry? And we all know, you know, wine is not an inexpensive industry. Mm-hmm. As far as like, if you the way you really learn wine is through tasting. The more you taste, the better you are at it. So that means, okay, if I have a person that I hired, and I did my quote unquote diversity quota, am I making sure they have the same access? to grow within the company that I hired them in. Mm-hmm. That's, that's something to think about when we have that. And also mentorship. I am a big believer in mentorship, and we have to make sure that happens because that's another way of learning as well. Right. Now, you write for Wine Enthusiast, but you don't write for Wine Spectator, or maybe you do. I don't. Uh, I am a contributing editor at Vine Pair. And I, I actually haven't pitched Wine Spectator. I, when I look through Wine Spectator, I kind of don't see myself reflected in the content, honestly. <laughs> no. And I think, I think, but here's the thing. I went on their Instagram Live. I do think that may change, and who knows? Here's the, here's the funny thing. This will put you off forever. You, you know how they rate restaurants by certain grading levels with different titles. 
Mm-hmm. So, 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 so why generally somewhere decided he didn't like Marvin Schenken. So he, so he applied for certification as a Grand Master of Wine, and and fulfilled all the obligations that they had to qualify for such a thing, except they never came to see his restaurant, which is a good thing because it didn't exist. <laughs> He, he, made oh, it up. he made he made it up. So I Did can't you never hear, hear that story, Julia? I, I, I canceled my... No. Mind. Oh, I yeah, it's real. <laughs> yeah, I can, That's about I the time we to cancel our subscription. Yeah. I canceled my subscription right away. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that'll, that'll caution you, right? Yeah, like it just, it, it, I did not expect to hear that. I didn't know. Now you're going to make me go and really, really look that up. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna apply and see if you can get a good sommelier award. That is too funny. It's terrible. <laughs> um, now, we talked earlier, there are a number of organizations uh, with the same sort or similar mission to yours. Could you tell us, our listeners, what some of those are? Well, uh, here's the thing. I think they're similar in a way, but they're very different. I think okay. a lot of Explain the organizations... Explain that. Re- you have some organization who are looking... They're not only looking to advance people currently, but they're also interested in bringing new talent, right? There are, they have new scholarships, right? If we think about Wine Unify, they have, you know, the applications for like WSET, right? I am working with people who are already in the industry. Okay. This is working to uplift the current people, not anyone necessarily new to the industry, okay. which I think is makes us a little different. Like we have requirements. Either you have experience or certification, and certifications with experience. So we don't put we, you're vetted to be on our list. And okay. if you like, just say you work for a wine company that's more of a MLM style. You know, one of those where like you you get a percentage by bringing people in. You uh-huh. know, to to actually work, you can't be on our list. Okay. Uh-huh. I didn't know they did because, anything. Are you, are you well, you know how you, you have different you have different ones where people, you know, they come into your home. It's almost like like wine Tupperware kind of thing. Oh, no, I didn't boy. even know they did that. <laughs> yeah, they have, and, and that's fine. I have no problem with people making a living. I just feel when your only perspective of wine is that it was what you're drinking is limited exactly. to that company. Have you, have then that's about, not a wine professional. Have you thought about affiliation with the Masters Sommeliers or an organization like that? I mean, they take well, the, like, I'm a, I well, I I'm working with people on scholarships and reading through their applicants to see who should get you know level one or level two. That's the next level, but that's more of I believe I have to. If I'm going to be the change, I need to help other people get to that change as well, and that requires mm-hmm. me to, like, work with them, and that's perfectly fine. But it's, it's more like we're working together to make change, and so I'm just – I'm really happy when they ask me to um, to do that. No, I mean, the times couldn't be worse as far as I can tell uh, for what – 
we're all trying to do. I mean, everything's closed down. And, um, and you know, I, mean, I know um, wine schools that do virtual tastings, which is not quite mm-hmm. the same thing. Uh, and then we have all these wildfires and these people fleeing for their life on California. It's so sad. It's so sad. Oh, it's just terrible. I mean, I just read about some new test for how damaged the grapes are. I mean, it's just awful. Mm. So it's it's a rough time, I think, for everybody. And um, so I guess it's, we're hunkering down even in, in in your mission, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, hoping that it will all pass. I, I I have to have we have to have some type of faith. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. we, just, we have. I have to look, try to look on the bright side because so many people are hurting yeah. um, with that right now. So for me, I am looking at this as okay. What can I do to help? What can I do to make this portion for some people a lot better? Like and with the virtuals, I'm, I'm really been happy to have. You know, reach out. People reach out to me. You know, to partner with some people on a list, and they like ask for a list of names, and then they go through, and then they figure out who on that list they can work with. Mm-hmm. And that way, that person actually get get gets a paid job. That's, That's the great. beauty of that. Now, is there a contact that you can leave our listeners with um, to get in touch with the, you, your organization, or what you would recommend? Oh, yeah, like you can just go to, on the website, website is blackwineprofessionals.com. You can always email me at hello at blackwineprofessionals.com. There's a contact form that goes directly to my email. So any way you want to just reach out, just I'm usually answer. I just ask people to give me patience. I've been inundated with so many emails that sometimes it takes a minute to kind of get through them all. Wow. Yeah, I am familiar with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so thankful that you took the time to talk to us, and I'm sure this is going to be an ongoing uh, issue. Um, I think that the, the, it's just, it's, I think it's unstoppable at this point. We will persevere. We so will persevere. thank We're you again. Yes, Julia. Again, Julia, the... the it's blackwineprofessionals.com, everyone. And uh, anything anybody could do to support this increase in diversity. We have a donate button. If they want to donate, we're giving people, like, uh, helping people with, like, classes, helping people with books if they need it. So we are always looking for donations as well. Oh, great. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Persevere. I guess that's a wrap for today, as we say. Yeah, that's a wrap for today. Let's 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 hope the power doesn't go out again next week. <laughs> we we do we do pay our bill. Yeah, I don't, no, I don't, no, I don't care what you say. Yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway, hope you enjoyed today's program, and you'll join us again same time, same place next week. And until then, bye bye.